Our reading from Joshua 9 is on page 184 of the Church Bible. It's page 184. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbling. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Hashbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbling. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbours and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. 
And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, to this day in the place that he should choose. Uh, it's lovely to see you all. Uh, my name's Rob. I'm uh, the leader of the church and um, one of the members here. Um, thank you so much for reading, Nina. And um, there is some tricky names in there, isn't there? <laughs> but she did absolutely well. It was fantastic. Um, and I, I find with those kind of names, if you just say it with enough confidence, everyone's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly how it should be pronounced. Um, uh, as I said, my name's Rob. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Um, we are looking as a church through this book of Joshua. So we've been kind of going through chapter by chapter as a church. Um, so we're sort of following the story of God uh, fulfilling his promise to the people to bring the people into the land um, of Canaan. And um, uh, let me pray for us when we start, um, and then we'll get into the passage. Let's pray. Father God, would you... Take this word, this scripture of yours, and by your spirit, would you plant it deep into our hearts? By it, would you train us in righteousness, make us to be like you, so that we would be thoroughly equipped by you for every good work to bring you glory. Amen. I think uh, you'll be familiar with uh, obvious threats in your life, things that you know, you're just obvious at the time. Things that you sort of think, that, that, that's a danger. I can see that coming. I need to watch out for that. And then there are less obvious ones. Kind of the ones that creep up on you. And you don't notice until it's too late. Our chapter here, chapter 9, starts with an obvious threat. You read that in verses 1 and 2, don't you? Let's read it together. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all, across, all along the coast of the great sea towards Lemadon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Banding together of, we don't know too much yet about all of these guys, do we, the, all of these different ites, but it doesn't sound great if all of these guys are getting together um, gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But actually, this is a feature um, of, of Joshua, and it's going to be an increasing feature going forward, uh, an obvious threat to God's promise and God's plan to give the people the land. And it's rising up from within the land itself, the people um, who, who oppose God. And, and that's, that's going to be a, a, an ongoing feature. Um, we've heard about this crowd actually before. So you would have heard of them in chapter 5, in the first couple of verses of that chapter. Uh, of that chapter, And that kind of opened the last section that we looked at in Joshua. So that closed with chapter 8. But when we first heard about them, should we have a look in chapter uh, 5, verse 1 and 2? And I want you to try and tell me what's, what's shifted, what's changed. The, what we just heard and what we're going to hear now. This was previously... It says in 5 verse 1, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 
So what's the difference? The first bit is the same, isn't it? They heard about something that God had done in, in, in a mighty way. And yet, what's the difference? Well, in chapter 5, they're fearful, aren't they? They don't know what to do. Uh, they're sort of immobilised by fear. They, they really don't know what they should do, um, the enemies of God. And yet, by chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, with the passing of a bit of time, and with yet more news of God's advance, now they're mobilised. What was previously kind of like a little bit of a, oh, we're not sure what to do with these guys, you know, uh, you know that kind of thing, has actually now mobilised and, and it's, it's direct opposition. So you see that in those chapters, chapter 5, chapter 9. The passing of time, yes. Uh, God hardening their hearts, Yes. And yet also, the news of more of God's advance has actually produced more animosity. Now, that's still the same thing today. Um, So, people who are Christians, um, and perhaps are those who, uh, will be those who want other people to become Christians. And will want to share the good news of Jesus with their friends, their family, the people at work, that kind of thing. And yet... They should not be surprised that with the advance of God's purposes to do that, that there will be animosity and growing animosity, an obvious threat. Yeah, You could probably chat to anyone in this room who's tried to share something of the Bible or something of the gospel with a a colleague at work or someone in their household, that kind of thing. Um, And you'll get some examples of that. So an obvious threat um, is here. Um, people shouldn't be surprised when those who previously they gently pushed back against the idea of a new church in a new area are actually years down the line when that church has grown the kind of people who want to have it shut down. Yeah? Or they shouldn't be surprised if they're a new believer in a family who, where their family members are sort of initially quite ambivalent about them going to church, you do your thing, we do ours. But that actually, that shifts and that changes over time. And there's an increasing pressure on you to stop going to church. And that will be directly in line with the progress that God is changing you. And the effect that God is having in your life. That, that further down the line, it's not quite you do your thing and us do ours. But we don't like that. And we want you to stop doing that. So there is direct threats. Uh, obvious threats here in verses 1 and 2 to God's plans, God's purposes uh, and there always will be and yet this chapter is not about an obvious threat if you were, if, if you'd managed to read it beforehand you would have realised that the whole talk of the kings here just completely drops dead we don't get to find out what happens to these people who are rising up in opposition until chapter 10 So you're going to have to come back next week to see what happens with that, okay? What we get here actually is a subtle threat. Something that the people didn't see coming. It it wasn't obvious to them. And we see that in this chapter. It goes entirely undetected by them all, all of them. The leaders, the elders, Joshua, none of them realise what's going on. 
Should we look at it? It's, um, it's our first point, and it's the folly of God's people. Okay, We're going to read about that in verses 6 to 15. Let's read together. Um, let's read from verse 3, actually, sorry. From verses 3 to 15. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, went on, they were on their part active with cunning, and went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes. So these guys are dressed for the occasion. You know, uh, th- thankfully no one here has sort of thought they needed to dress up to describe what the Gibeonites looked like, because they were tatty, right? But that's part of the act. Let's read on. Um, And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So here we have a group of people who actually are just 20 miles down the road from where the people of God are at this point. And yet they've managed to convince Israel that they're from a distant country. They look like it because they've got their tattered old clothes from the journey. They've made sure their bread is really old and mouldy. And and they come and they say, don't we, we're from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And we're going to see what happens, uh, what, what God's people do. Can you blame God's people, though, for taking it in? Because it's pretty convincing, isn't it? And it says they acted with cunning. It was convincing. But why the need for an act in the first place? Why are they doing this? Why does it matter if they're 20 miles down the road or or from a distant country? Well, Gibeon knew that they were on the list of those nations who were going to face God's judgment. We've heard about that, haven't we, previously in Joshua? They must also have known that God's law compelled Israel to offer terms of peace to a city, but not to neighbouring cities in the land, but to anyone from other lands who want to make a covenant with them. And so Gibeon are being clever here. They're saying, like, we know that according to God's word, this is the only way we're going to... And be safe. And they're acting on that, aren't they? They, they know that that's their only hope. And so they, they do this. As, if, as Gibeon was only 20 miles away, they knew that they would need to trick Israel into thinking that they had travelled much further if they are to be spared. In a crooked kind of way, they really are acting on God's word, aren't they? They're taking God's word seriously. And Gibeon's disguise was good. A cunning disguise. But verse 14 tells us what made it so effective. And it's not their disguise. What is it? Verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. So what made it so effective was not the cunning disguise, but the prayerlessness of God's people. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. Israel must have known, and God's people knew, didn't they, that it was the Lord who had brought them to this point. And yet on this matter, they did not inquire of him. 
Perhaps they deemed it too minor a decision. You know, just one of those everyday decisions. Uh, should we do this or should we do that? Or maybe they thought it was something well within their capability to deal with. Perhaps they thought that they could just work God's plan. You know, God had written it down, given us the instructions. We don't need him. <laughs> we'll just get on with what he's told us to do. You see the difference? We don't know. But actually, this glowing omission, the fact that they don't seek God, is written throughout this chapter. Because, have a look, anywhere in this chapter, can you hear, the Lord said. Can you see something where it says, the Lord said. And yet, in the previous chapters of Joshua, we've become accustomed, haven't we, to hearing, the Lord said to Joshua, and Joshua commanded the people, and they did what the Lord said. And yet, nowhere in this chapter... Lord speaks. And so the point is made even louder by the silence. It's clear that, that he hasn't spoken to them. And yet they don't even see the need to find out why. And they are proud, perhaps, self-confident. And they're just getting on with things. And they don't, don't think about the consequences of the decision... I don't think. I don't think they knew where it would lead. Because if you read from verse 16 onwards, it kind of picks up a bit of pace here, right? So that conversation was a, a slow moment. Them trying to suss them out. Are you, the, are you from, from who you say you are? Yes, we are. Are you who you say you are? Yes, we are. And then they basically just agree with them. And yet in verse 16, it all speeds up. Let's read it. At the end of the three days... After they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbours and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon and Chephorah, Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. I think that these verses describe the, the immediate knock-on effects of that one bad decision. So you get the decision, it's all building up to verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And then next verse, these are the immediate knock-on effects of that. Um, and knock-on effects of this, well, they quickly discover the truth and that these are not actually the Gibeonites. Uh, they are the Gibeonites. They're not who they say they are. They discover that they have been tricked, of course, but they are bound to keep their promise. They have to. And then there's this mass disunity between the people of God, between the leaders and the, the, the people in the church, the congregation. So there's a lot that happens as a result of this bad decision. Uh, one uh, book I read on this said the, these words. He said, the honour of God is now at stake. And his very name implies that he is a God who faithfully keeps every one of his promises. If Israel were now to turn upon the Gibeonites, that would be to use God's word and his name and say that it's unreliable. So their oath is really important. Because they've said... By God, in the name of Yahweh, we will, not, we will not do this. We make a covenant with you. 
for them to now go against that would be to to make Yahweh seem unreliable, capricious, unpredictable, and his name would be trodden underfoot because of their foolishness. And and, and the leaders know we can't allow that to happen. Even though we've made a bad decision here, we now can't go back on our decision because that would be to say something completely wrong about the God that we belong to. If he keeps his promises... And even if our promise was made in, uh, in a rush or, you know, in, uh, we have to keep our promise and that has to be seen. So these are the knock-on effects of the bad decision, the folly of God's people. They did not seek the Lord. And I think it could be summarised like this, right? I think you could say, we did what we thought was best or the right thing to do at the time. And, and, and if you think about that, that quote, that phrase, think about the amount of times you could say that in your own life. I just did what I thought was the right thing at the time. And yet, in, in and of itself, it, it often means that we realised afterwards that it wasn't the right thing to do. And that we've just trusted our decision making in the moment and said, yeah, we, we can discern this. We know what to do. It seemed like the right thing to do at the time. So that's the folly of Israel. The people are in uproar and the leaders, rightly so, say that they cannot now allow the people to do Gibeon harm. Because that would be going against their word. But now we're going to see the same situation. We're going to see it from the perspective of God. I've said that he's, he seems like he's not saying anything in this chapter. But let's have a think about that. Where is God in this chapter? And what's he doing in this chapter? Because at the moment it just seems like a whole bunch of guys falling out and a big drama, right? Where is God in this chapter? Well, he's there, isn't he, in verse 9. The people say, because of the name of the Lord your God we have come. For we heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So God is here in that there's a report about what God has done. Yes, what he has done in judgment, but the fact that he is God. And then they recognise that there's something that needs to be done in response to him. But God is here in his wisdom and in his... I'm just giving you the verses for that. And he's here in the result of what happens in this story, okay? So what is the result of all of this situation in verses 21 to 27? Should we read that together? It says this, And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. 
whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So Joshua did this to the people of Israel. Uh, So Joshua did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So we've seen the folly of Israel, but we also need to see the wisdom of Israel's God, Yahweh. What is his purposes in this? We'll look at the second part of his purposes in chapter 10, as I said. We'll hear a bit more of the story next week um, in, in the fact that he's going to use this to take down his enemies. But for now, we get a first glimpse of the infinite wisdom of God as the Gibeonites are brought in to serve him. That's the big message of those verses that we just read. Um, so let me show it to you. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a bit slow. I don't, I don't always listen first time. So I'm, I'm, it's quite good when the Bible tells me something three times. Because by the third time, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm meant to notice that. I'm meant to notice that. First time, I might have just glossed over it. So three times in this, these verses, you get this, these words. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water. You first get that when... Uh, in what the leaders, no, in what Joshua says to them. No, sorry, in what the narrator says in verse 21. So you first get that in verse 21. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So that's the first time you hear of it. The second time you hear of it is verse 23, when Joshua says it to them. In verse 23, he says... Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. Pay attention, because I'm going to ask you what the difference is between these three at the end. So what's the third one? Um, for the congregation, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the answer. Um, let's read the third one in verse 27. So in verse 27, it says, But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord. So there is a progression here, isn't there? Initially, it says for all the congregation. The second time, Joshua says it, he says, for the congregation and for the house of our God. For the house of my God. And in the third time, he says, for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. Now, why is this important? Well, I think it shows, doesn't it, that God is, is fulfilling his promise to the nations to bring in other nations to be those who would worship and serve him. Because after all, he's God. And his glory amongst nations is his major project. And here we see that the people have been brought in, but not just to sort of be on the edge of things, but to be right there in the centre of Israel's worship. In the temple, at the altar of the Lord. And so here, we see amazingly, even though, yes, there's been a whole load of foolishness in the chapter, God is the one who's been overall in charge of things, working out his purposes. And you get this nation, um, who otherwise would have faced a judgement, 
all becoming those who would serve and worship him. It's not just a sign of his wisdom in doing that, in being able to do that with the situation and through all of the intricacies of that, but his mercy, the fact that he wants people, he wants to save people and bring them in. We're going to have a think of what that means for us. Um, If you wouldn't call yourself a believer or a Christian, I think this example of Gibeon, it ironically proves that you don't need to twist God's arm for mercy. Doesn't it? Because Gibeon, they might have thought they were pretty clever. But you know what? God knew what was going on. It's not like God's like, God, they really, they really did fool me that time. I, th- I thought they were they, those people from far from... He knows. And yet God, miraculously, he, al- he allows that to happen. Because his desire is that they would know him. So we don't... If you're not a Christian, you might think that there's loads of things you have to do to twist God's arm into, give, into being merciful to you. If I do this, God, then you can do this. If I do this. But if any of those things start with, God, if I do this, then that's twisting his arm. And yet here we see that God is merciful. He loves to, to give his mercy, to grant his mercy to people. And, and even if the people coming to him are crooked, they're going about it the wrong way, he still gives it to them because he loves to give his mercy. And so if you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, why not? Why don't you turn to Jesus today? Why don't you have his mercy on your life rather than his judgment? You don't have to twist God's arm. He freely gives it. Maybe we need to see that our situation is desperate without that. That our card is marked for judgment. And the only way of hope and a future is that if we too are brought under this same promise. I pray that that's your prayer today. Perhaps you're um, someone who's of the opinion uh, from perhaps experience of other religions or even within churches that God only accepts well-behaved people. (laughs) Right? I mean... Should we, should we run a list of what people might think the, are the kind of well-behaved things that, that people should do? They should vote, right? They should put their rubbish out and not spread it all over the road. You know, that's the kind of people that God is going to accept. But this example of the Gibeonites flies right in the face of that, doesn't it? It says, God saved these people. They were actually in the very act of deceiving and being crooked... When, they were, when he brought them in. And so, if you're someone who tends to think, you know, God, I do my bit, I'm a good person, and therefore you're going to reward me. And the, the sad thing about that and the tragedy of that is that it, it blinds you. It blinds me as well to see the danger that I too am heading towards. And so we need to know, as the Gibeonites did, that that is not the way in. Only if he invites us in, by his mercy alone, 
will we be saved. That's the only way. Not because we're good, not because we put our bins out, not because we vote. I did vote, by the way. But not because I did that. Um, If you're a believer here today, there is a, a, a caution and a comfort here, isn't there? I think comfort is clear, isn't it? That even when God's people make an absolute mess of things and get it completely wrong, God is still God. You know what? His promises still stand. He is guarding and honouring his name amongst the nations. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. And he is doing that. He's causing people to, to see the need of him, to come to him, to submit to him. And revealing his hardening in the hearts of others. That's also what he's doing, as we'll see next week. But that means that as God's people today, if we make a bad decision out of prayerlessness, and we realise that, we, we shouldn't try to backpedal from that decision or avoid the consequences, thinking we can somehow turn it back. To do that would be to bring God's name into disrepute. We can hold our hands up and trust that God is even at work when the outcomes are what we didn't choose or expect. So when we get it wrong, we can still trust that he is at work and come to him. The caution then is how quickly we can make decisions without first seeking the Lord. How quickly we can get on with what we think God is telling us to do without actually thinking we need him (laughs) in all of this. It does show us to be proud, doesn't it? And self-confident. And it leaves us wide open to flattery, actually. Because people can just say, yeah, if people start saying you're, you're doing a great job, then we think, oh, yes, we are. And we can't trust our own discernment on situations, what we see or what people say. We have to seek God. So why don't we do that now? Let's pray. Father God, this is your world. You know everyone and everyone here. Everything and everyone here. And uh, thank you that because of that you know what we need most, which is you. And thank you that you take uh, foolish people, crooked people, and you call them to know you. Thank you that you reveal yourself in the Bible as the mighty God, as Jesus Christ, the one who does your mighty works in this world. Thank you that you, through him, we see that you go after the crooked people, the, the Zacchaeuses, the tax collectors, those who are cheating others, and those are the people that you call to know you. Please would we not be those who think uh, we're too good for that, and therefore are blind to our need of you. Please would you help us to be those who would humbly keep walking with you, and seeking your face uh, for every single decision that we make. Uh, Please, we would be people who are looking to your word uh, as to what you would have us do and not thinking that we know. 
Peter would be the, would we be those who pray for each other? Uh, because we know that without you, we can do nothing. And uh, would you please keep changing us by your word? Don't let us be those who just hear it on a Sunday and then uh, ignore it or forget it. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.